This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you for inviting me to give this talk today. My name is Jane Hanna, and I'm a faculty member at the West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine, or WVSOM. Today I'm going to talk about the rise and fall of climbing in human evolution. My research focuses on the biomechanics and energetics of climbing in non-human primates and how this may inform our understanding of human movement. Here's an outline for today's talk. I'll first be talking about what we know about primate locomotion or movement in general, what we know about non-human primate climbing, and what does it all mean for human exercise? As you can see from Darwin's quote, quote even close to 150 years ago, people recognize that humans are unique in the way that they move. They move bipedally on extended hind limbs or their, their legs, and they move like this almost constantly. It's their primary mode of getting around. Almost unique, I should say, because we have lots of examples of non-human primates that stand up on their hind limbs and move around. Now, they're not doing this all the time. In fact, their primary mode of locomotion tends to be using all four limbs. But we think that since humans and non-human primates move around on their hind limbs, and most non-human primates are primarily arboreal or live in the trees, we think that living in the trees had something to do with the evolution of this relatively unique form of human locomotion. Living in the trees is tough. Unlike horses and dogs, mm -hmm. other animals and other animals that are stuck on the ground, primates have to deal with this incredibly complex arboreal environment where it's three-dimensional, and if you fall, it could be really bad. Primates also have to resist gravity when they're going up, even on vertical surfaces that are not trees, like these baboons that you see moving around and inhabiting this vertical cliff face. Anthropologists think that when the earliest primates invaded this arboreal habitat, and in particular moved around on these thin ends of branches or terminal branches, they had to evolve certain morphological or anatomical features that allowed them to stay in that environment. Primates do exhibit several anatomical features that we think are related to living in the trees, like nails instead of claws, long forelimbs or arms, the occasional prehensile or grasping tail that functions as a fifth limb, and perhaps one of the most well-known features is our grasping hands and non-human primates' grasping feet. So we think that these somewhat unique anatomical features are actually related to the very unique biomechanical features that we see most non-human primates exhibiting when they're moving around. Now, most of the research we've done is actually on horizontal movement, so moving around on the ground or on simulated arboreal supports that are basically like a branch, um, but horizontally, not going up and down. What we know is that primates actually exhibit a gait sequence that's called diagonal sequence, diagonal couplet. And this is actually in contrast to most other um, mammals. So if you look at your cat or your dog, or if you've got horses, they use something called a lateral sequence, lateral couplet gait, where their um, same side limbs, like their right 
forelimb and the right hind limb move at a similar pace and at a similar time. That's in contrast to primates where they're using this diagonal sequence, diagonal couplet gait, and the same side limbs, forelimbs and hind limbs, um, are close together when they're on the ground. We think this is related to primates' ability um, to be stable on a, a branch that might move around and bow under their body weight. The second thing we know about primates that's relatively unique compared to other mammals is that primates use much larger forelimb or shoulder angles than non-human mammal, or excuse me, non-primate mammals. Um, this allows for a much longer stride, much longer step. It would also reduce the vertical movements of a branch if the animal is on a tree branch that might bow under their body weight. And finally, we know that primates bear most of their weight on their hind limbs when they're moving around. That's in contrast to what um, mam other mammals do, where other mammals bear most of their weight on their forelimb. This actually is really important for moving around in a three-dimensional arboreal environment where we think that primates had to free up their forelimb in order to grab the branch in front of them or grab the food in front of them or test the support. And ultimately, we think this particular force feature um, is involved in primates eventually being able to move around solely on their hind limbs. The other thing we know about movement in primates and in mammals in general is we have measured the cost of the energy cost of moving horizontally. And we know that for small animals, small primates, it costs quite a bit per unit body mass to move horizontally. And for large primates, it costs a lot less per unit body mass to move horizontally. And that includes people. In fact, people, if this is the uh, general um, regression line of the energy cost of moving horizontally, people are down here somewhere in, in the large body mass size, uh, and it costs them even less than we might expect based on all other mammals to move around horizontally. If we superimpose the percent efficiency uh, over this graph, that would tell us that the um, small primates are actually pretty inefficient. They use a lot of energy to go a specific distance, whereas large primates, including people, are super efficient. They can go much further for a given amount of energy than small primates. What that tells us is that the cost of for performing work is approximately related to the speed at which the muscles are functioning rather than the force that muscles are um, producing work at. It's all great and dandy, <laughs> but what are primates actually doing when they're climbing? Um, my colleagues and I, over the last several years, have been able to collect data, biomechanical data and energetic data, on the costs of climbing in primates. And what we found relative to those four features we just talked about are, um, are this. First, primates, when they're moving vertically, when they're climbing up a simulated trunk or branch, actually use a lateral sequence diagonal couplet um, type of footfall sequence. So on the face of it, they're going to look more like a cat or a dog or a horse that's moving horizontally, but that diagonal couplet helps keep their diagonally opposite forelimb and hindlimb close together in time and in space on the branch. And certainly that's going to keep the, the primate from falling off the side of the branch. 
We also know that during um, climbing, primates use more frequent strides and they keep their hands and feet in contact with the branch much longer than they do when they're moving horizontally. And of course, that's going to keep them more safe and secure on that vertical support. Second, we were curious about this uh, force relationship between the forelimbs and hindlimbs. And here we have a graph of increasing body size as we head to the right-hand side of the graph. So small primates down here, large primates up here. And what we're looking at are the balancing forces. So keeping them from, from pushing and pulling into the pole. So if you envision this primate being rotated vertically, we're looking at these forces balancing into and out of the pole. And you can see here that small primates actually kind of have balancing forces that can either be positive or negative, can push into or pull out of the pole to keep them on it. And as we get larger and, and larger to the right-hand side of the graph, we see primates start to use their limbs differently. So we've got the above the graph hind limbs in the darker gray and below the graph forelimbs in the lighter gray. And as we get larger, these limbs are being used differentially. And you can see that these darker hind limb forces, balancing forces, are larger in general from an absolute perspective than these lighter forelimb forces. So larger primates are using this kind of balancing force relationship where they're putting more balancing force on their hind limbs than they are on their forelimbs. Whereas smaller primates can use their forelimbs and hind limbs similarly. They can use them to balance both into and out of the pole. So we definitely see a force differential um, in when primates are climbing, um, which is very similar to what we're seeing during horizontal locomotion. Third, and, and these data I don't have numbers yet because I'm still analyzing it, uh, we looked at the angles of the forelimbs and the hindlimbs, or the, the shoulder and the hip in primates. And what we've found is that smaller primates, so these are outlines of a bunch of different primates that we've had the opportunity to look at. Smaller primates um, hold themselves, their shoulders and their hips, further from the pole than large primates. Large primates tend to be closer to the pole. And small primates, their hind limb is more crouched than larger primates. So even though they're further from the pole, their hip angle is more flexed than large primates. And, and that makes a little bit of sense if you think about the fact that humans, when they're moving around, and large animals in general, tend to move around with a more extended hind limb. Fourth, we've managed to get some data on what it costs primates to climb. So this is a similar graph to what we saw during horizontal locomotion. This is the horizontal line where it costs small primates a heck of a lot to, to move horizontally, and large primates a little bit less to move horizontally. This line is what it costs primates to move vertically. And you can see small primates, it costs about the same amount of energy to move vertically as it does horizontally. Whereas large primates, it costs a heck of a lot more to move vertically than it does horizontally. And I'll just point out that this is still per unit body mass. And we do, there. I haven't collected data on humans climbing, but there are data out there on people rock climbing, um, and they fall pretty much right on this line, which is approximately, has a slope of approximately zero. 
I recognize it looks like it's a little, it's a little um, decreasing as you get to larger body masses, but there's no significant difference between small primates and large primates. That's great. What does it all mean for human exercise? Well, we know that it's a good way to do a lot of work and burn a lot of energy is to go up. Certainly, we've been aware of this for, for many years. Um, I've got some pictures here of, of hiking uh, in the foothills of the Alps, uh, and you can see the elevation change. Um, I can tell I'm a little embarrassed. I'm not going to show you how much energy it costs me, but it costs me a lot of energy to do that. And we know that climbing is similar to steep incline locomotion, or stair climbing, at least, of course, for the lower limb. However, it does mean that anatomical differences, like limb, limb length, joint mobility, even grasping hands and feet, may not matter overall for the cost of climbing. Um, but, but it may matter for different styles of climbing, because all of the data we've collected so far are based on a specific style of climbing. So where do we go from here? We know that primates, including humans, use different styles of climbing. All the data I've collected so far with my colleagues are on non-human primates climbing in, in this type of, of format, where they're mostly moving their limbs in two dimensions rather than three dimensions out like this, where we see this young gentleman. Um, this is a three-dimensional style of climbing that we call uh, frog-style climbing. Um, so we've only looked at this style of climbing. But we know people and other non-human uh, primates climb in a variety of different ways. There's other researchers out there looking at the costs um, and biomechanics of moving in a three-dimensional environment, such you know, utilizing uh, participants that are parkour athletes um, that can regularly traverse these, these crazy three-dimensional environments. I and my colleagues have begun to look at the biomechanics and costs of traversing gaps um, by non-human primates, and particularly if those gaps are vertical. You can see the somewhat acrobatic movement by these um, pygmy slow lorises and slender lorises. And finally, we have no idea what it costs to go down. Certainly, we know that it could cost nothing to go down, and hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, and in resisting gravity, if you're descending, you're likely to be generating quite a bit of force to resist that gravity. And so there we think the costs will go up. We also recognize that humans are unable to descend um, using these inverted foot postures like this eye here. Um, and so certainly that kind of information, um, the, the ability anatomically to use certain postures um, in non-human primates we're not going to see in human primates. So there's still quite a bit to, to learn about climbing, both in non-human primates and in human primates. I would like to take a moment to um, indicate that all of the animal work that's been done over the past many years has been approved by an animal ethics review committee before it's ever been conducted um, with the animals. And I'd also like to thank the many animal handlers um, and, and, and keepers for assistance with data collection. Also, the many wonderful colleagues that I've had discussions with about this work. And finally, of course, the funding sources, NSF and WVSOM intramural funds. Thanks. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.